Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. In this episode, join us for a discussion on addressing abuse in long-term care facilities with Dr. Laura Mosqueda, a professor of family medicine and geriatrics, and Beverly Laubert, the National Ombudsman Program Coordinator at the Administration for Community Living. Hello, I'm Lori Smetanka, the Executive Director of the Consumer Voice, and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. Today, we're talking about abuse of those living in long-term care facilities. It's an issue that affects thousands of residents of nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and other long-term care settings every year. Abuse is defined in federal regulations as the willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, or punishment with resulting physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. It can take many forms, including physical abuse, verbal, sexual, mental, emotional, and financial abuse. And despite the fact that federal law states that residents of long-term care facilities have the right to be free from abuse, it still does occur and is largely underreported and inadequately investigated and addressed. Recent data are indicating an increased concern about incidences of abuse in long-term care facilities. And that, along with the fact that June 15th, which is right around the corner for us as we're recording this, is designated as World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, made us think it was important and timely to talk about this topic. So joining us for today's discussion, are two of my very favorite people. Uh, Dr. Laura Mosqueda is a professor of family medicine and geriatrics at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Mosqueda is a clinician, researcher, educator, and is widely respected authority on elder abuse and care of the elderly and underserved. She's held several roles at the Keck School of Medicine, including as Dean, and she is the director of the National Center on elder abuse, of which Consumer Voice is a partner. She also serves as a volunteer long-term care ombudsman. And also joining us is Beverly Laubert, who is the National Ombudsman Program Coordinator at the Federal Administration for Community Living. Beverly served as an ombudsman in Ohio for 33 years, including 26 years as the state long-term care ombudsman. She spent a year in the governor's cabinet as the director of the Ohio Department of Aging. And Beverly was one of 25 members selected to serve on the National Coronavirus Commission for Safety and Quality in Nursing Homes, which I was also a member of and served with her on um, and provided input to the recently released report from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine called the National Imperative to Improve Nursing Home Quality. So thank you both for joining me today on this to discuss this important topic. Thank you, Lori. Um, And I have to say thank you for all of the support that the Consumer Voice gives to ombudsman programs uh, nationwide um, as a host for the National Ombudsman Resource Center. You do great work in empowering families and, and residents, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. Thank you. Glad to have both of you with us, and the ombudsmen are also some of my favorite people, so (laughs) particularly delighted to talk to both of you. So um, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, June 15th um, is designated as World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, and um, Dr. Mosqueda, maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about what that is and why it's important that we focus on elder abuse. I'm happy to. Thanks for inviting me um, uh, to participate in this podcast. 
Well, I have to say, for me, it's interesting to talk about World Elder Abuse Awareness Day because when Dr. the wonderful Dr. Elizabeth Potniak from Canada thought this up and, and wanted to get it launched, I was really skeptical. Like, hi, they like, do we really need do we really need another something something day? And I was dead wrong. And Dr. Podniak was exactly right on target. I mean, so I've seen it from the beginning. I don't know how many years ago it started now. But it really has launched this national movement of awareness, because as you alluded to a moment ago, Lori, if you don't know that it's a problem, you're not going to find it. Um, and so we have to raise awareness and let people know not only that it's a problem, but it's a problem that has solutions um, and that it's something that we can actually prevent um, and that it's something that we can detect earlier than we have been doing and do something about. So. It's been a wonderful way to raise awareness all over the world. And we're really proud um, at the National Center on Elder Abuse to, to, to sort of take the lead on, that, on, on launching the national awareness campaigns. And we see it happening now in every state uh, in the country. Um, so, um, so lots of activity going on, lots of awareness raising and um, providing tools, solutions, really practical information for the public. Absolutely. You all do a great job. Um, and this has gained, gained a lot of traction over the years. We, it's really delightful to see how it's been growing. Elder Abuse Awareness Day, the, the activities and the awareness has been growing year after year after year. So uh, you and the team at um, the National Center on Elder Abuse has been doing a great job on that. Um, can you tell folks a link to where to get more information about World Elder Abuse Awareness Day? We can um, post that on our website. And, and I know we link to it at the Consumer Voices website at theconsumervoice.org. Right. And we link to it at the National Center on Elder Abuse. Um, so that's just the easiest thing to do is Google Great. National Center on Elder Abuse and you'll you'll get right to we add, as we call it, World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. Perfect. Perfect. So um, I know uh, you've also done a, a lot of work in, in, in looking at the issue of abuse among elders. And can you talk a little bit about the prevalence of abuse? What do we know about the prevalence of abuse among elders, including in long-term care facilities? Well, so it's shockingly common. Um, it's estimated that about one in 10 older adults is abused or neglected at some point. And if you look at people who have dementing illnesses like Alzheimer's disease, the number goes up to one in two. So 50% of people with a dementing illness are abused at some point. Um, during the course of their illness. It's hard to get good information about what's happening in nursing homes and other long-term care settings, because as you can imagine, um, researchers aren't particularly welcome into those settings to study these issues. And it's also hard to, to study and um, because it's, there's a lot of room for interpretation for it. But what we do know is that it's common uh, we know that it happens a lot at home. We believe that it happens a lot at nursing homes, and we have a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence for that related to interviews of people who work there and who have lived there. But because many of the people who live there, because let's not forget the second word in nursing home is home. These are whenever, so whenever I enter into a nursing home, I'm very aware that I'm entering into somebody's home. Um, but it's often not a very home-like environment, um, and the people who live there often have cognitive impairments that either makes it difficult for them to communicate what's happening, or they do communicate what's happening and we don't believe them, 
uh, because they do have a cognitive impairment. So it's a little hard to get a handle on what's happening. Um, and I'm sure during the podcast, we'll talk about a few other barriers to understanding this as well. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. That Beth. really points to the need for really good staff training in dementia to, to be able to recognize when someone is, has changed, you know, something's going on to start asking questions and, and good education for families too. And, you know, for many years, I've seen a perception um, out in the world that, you know, if someone is having a problem at home or maybe um, has an abuser living with them or um, isn't able to take care of themselves, that they'll be safer if they go to a nursing home. And so I think this is a great opportunity for us to really dispel that myth that, um, people can be abused no matter where they live. And um, as you said, Laura, uh, you know, the the other contributing factors, risk factors um, in long-term care. And, and when you have insufficient staffing uh, in those facilities that, and not consistent staffing for the staff to get to know those residents and families and understand how to really provide care for them, um, it just there are so many uh, things that can happen and, and go wrong. Well, and I, I think, you know, you both raised some really important points. Um, and, you know, certainly the people that are living in long-term care facilities because of the conditions that often lead them to go into the facilities to live there can cause them to be um, more vulnerable to abuse and, um, and often unable to either raise issues or raise concerns um, or, or the fact that they may be abused. And so we often rely on others to help identify, to help protect, to help, you know, help prevent in so many ways abuse from happening. Um, and there's a lot of reliance on staff, on family members and visitors that come in um, to help play some of those roles. And um, I think we know that that you know, sufficient staffing, both in terms of numbers and in terms of training, is a really critical element of helping to prevent abuse. Do you both see that in your work? Yeah, and, and staff turnover is a problem. I'm so glad that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are starting to post information about staff turnover, because again, if if the staff don't know the residents and and don't become a trust a trusted person for that resident to be able to speak up to we want staff to speak up if they see something wrong you know maybe something another staff person did or even you know someone else a visitor coming in um, we and we need residents to be able to trust the staff and with the continual churning of staff um, you don't develop those trusting relationships. You know, abuse is like the ultimate form of ageism, right? That um, it, it's just, if you don't have people caring for older adults who really care about what they're doing, um, you know, as, as the National Association of Healthcare Assistants says, you know, we, we need to have a care force um, and stop talking about a workforce, but really talk about a care force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that point, Bev. And, and you know, um, it, it brings into, into, I think, 
into the light some of the tension that exists. Um, you know, they are, are they facilities or are they homes? Um, what is the role of a staff member? We want to avoid victim blaming because that person is so hard right. to take care right. of. Right. right. Not their fault. So um, but, you know, the staff are under their own pressures as well, um, mm -hmm. whether it's poorly paid, their own home situations, um, long hours, tough work, lack of training, et cetera. Right. But that doesn't allow or excuse any form of abusive or neglectful behavior. And then we have to go one level up um, and really look at the industry itself um, and understand that there's you know, occasionally you have somebody who has, let's say some psychopathology and is doing really awful things, sexual assault, physical abuse, et cetera. But I think even more commonly are these systemic issues where people aren't getting paid enough, aren't getting trained well enough. And so it's easy to blame that CNA when really it's several levels above um, yes. that we also have to talk about that contributes to, to an atmosphere in which abuse and neglect are allowed uh, and, uh, uh, and really in, in some ways just almost a setup for, for it to happen. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that that's really critical um, because so often it are the, it's these other factors that either lead to, as you mentioned, to some of the incidents that may occur or um, prevent some of uh, the warning signs from being identified. Um, and, and so that is really critical. Critical. I mean, there are certainly requirements for facilities to have sufficient staff to ensure that they're adequately trained um, on abuse prevention, on reporting, requirements related to reporting, ensuring that staff are well-trained to um, handle the needs of the residents that they're caring for, including people with dementia who have cognitive impairments. And those things are really critical. And a lot of that doesn't always happen for those individuals. And so the systemic uh, issues absolutely need to be addressed. It, and it needs to be enforced. So yes. it's, it's a nice thing to have regulations, um, but we also have federal versus state issues. So, and we have a very powerful lobby. Um, and, um, and we absolutely, I mean, there's plenty of data showing the relationship between staffing ratios and, um, and bad outcomes for the people who live in nursing homes. Yet you have um, at state levels, uh, groups fighting, fighting the, the um, enforcement or, the, or just legalizing staffing ratios. And then right. we have to enforce it. Um, and then when we enforce it, we have to enforce it with teeth. Um, because frankly, I think for some places, hey, $12,000 fine, no big deal. That's the cost of doing business. But somebody was neglected to death. And is that all that a life is worth? Um, so I think the other issue this gets to, um, we've mentioned ageism a few minutes ago, is the dehumanization and how easy it is to think of a person living in a nursing home as, as other, um, less than human, they have Alzheimer's, whatever. Um, and the importance of returning the respect and dignity in recognition of another person as a human being, um, how important that is for all of us to keep in mind. 
Absolutely. And certainly, as we all have been advocating, you know, for stronger enforcement uh, and standards, um, because that is definitely a deterrent that needs to be put into place um, related to this and to ensure that that people are protected. And that's what the system is for. The enforcement system is for is to help protect people um, and to prevent um, bad outcomes from occurring for other people um, in the future. And so that that's definitely something that we need to be advocating for. Um, you know, as we think about, um, you know, sources of support for residents, you know, we, we think a lot about the long-term care ombudsman program. And um, this was, again, as I mentioned earlier, an, another reason why we wanted to do this podcast today, um, because as we were looking at recent data that ombudsman submit to Bev, your office at the Administration for Community Living, we noticed that um, that physical abuse jumped into the top five um, complaints that were received by long-term care ombudsmen in 2020. And, and that really stuck out for us because the, it had not been um, that high in uh, the, the complaints that had been received. So first of all, can you talk a little bit about what the ombudsman program is um, and then talk about why you think this might be significant that we've seen um, the abuse complaints jump in to the top five? Well, the full Federal Older Americans Act requires that every state have an office of the state long-term care ombudsman to uh, advocate for residents of long-term care facilities of all types. And some ombudsman programs also have state authority to um, do their work in home and community-based settings um, if someone's living at home and getting home care services, for example. Um, but primarily ombudsmen are known for investigating and uh, trying to resolve complaints um, that are made by or on behalf of residents. Uh, we get many complaints about families or, or about, from families, excuse me, um, and uh, other visitors. And so anyone can make a complaint and ombudsmen are sometimes the ones identifying the problems. If they're able to have a regular presence in the long-term care facility and kind of see what's going on. I talked about consistent staff assignment. Similarly, we want ombudsmen to get to know facilities and, and get to know residents. And, um, but they also do some systems advocacy, um, you know, representing the interests of residents before governmental agencies, testifying on legislation and so on. Um, and I know that there have been some bills um, recently um, or over the years, but I think we've heard about it more recently um, with uh, the pandemic and lack of visitation or restricted visitation that people have wanted to put cameras in uh, rooms. So that's been a, a point of um, legislation in some states as well. So you're right um, that abuse did um, join the top five um, ombudsman complaints, um, both in 2020 and 2021 in all types of facilities. Um, but it's, you know, it, it went up both in uh, assisted living facilities as well as nursing homes. And, you know, we were talking about uh, enforcement and there is a federal role in nursing homes um, for uh, enforcement of quality standards, but we don't have a federal role in assisted living. And so people really need to get to know what their state requirements are and um, how regulators um, see assisted living and, and other types of facilities. 
So one thing I wanted to point out, you know, I'm not a statistician, but I do think it's significant that overall, um, over the last couple of years, complaints have total complaints to the ombudsman program have gone down, but abuse still went up. And so um, I think that is especially significant, you know, during the pandemic, early on, um, we had with the visitation restrictions and visitation went into the top five in 2021, as well as, as restrictions were lifted and people could go in according to the regulators and centers for disease um, control and prevention. However, um, facilities weren't, weren't following that and opening up as much as families wanted. And so our visitation complaints went up. But um, so early in the pandemic, you know, people were calling and saying, I can't get in to see my mom and, um, you know, various things happening, maybe window visits, they were doing that sort of thing. But then as families started going back, the stories we heard about what condition that they found residents in, uh, weight loss, lack of mobility, you know, now using a wheelchair all the time, mom used to walk down to the dining room, now she's not walking, um, uh, uh, poor personal hygiene, uh, those sorts of things that families saw after they hadn't been in homes for a long time. And so um, the I think that is part of um, the increase in abuse complaints that uh, families just saw things that um, maybe they, you know, they had missed um, because of the pandemic and, and because they weren't in there and there weren't, uh, there weren't very many eyes and ears um, right. in long-term care facilities, sadly, um, in the early stages of the pandemic to see what was going on and, you know, that's just not a good situation. Mm -hmm. And if if uh, if I can tag team on that, uh, Lori, um, I can't imagine one other group of people in this country who you could have put into solitary confinement for such a long period of time, right? And get away with it, right? Um, I think it was reprehensible, and I think it was disgusting, um, and. Um, you know, the ombudsman were kept out, um, family members were kept out, residents were not asked about their opinions, um, their autonomy was completely subsumed by whatever the corporations wanted. Now, I can understand that the first few weeks, or maybe even the first few months, maybe, but after that, no, not acceptable. And again, no consequences. Uh -huh. So even when, I think after what, a year, it took for the government to say this is unacceptable, there were still no consequences for places that were keeping families out, ombudsmen out. Um, and then it was disingenuous. Like, well, if you want to come in you have to test negative, but there was no access to tests in order to test negative. Uh -huh. So um, we have to learn from that and we have to do better. Uh -huh. This is not who we want to be as a society. We talk about ageism, which is really just a bizarre prejudice against our future selves. And, uh, and people need to understand deeply 
that this is us, this is our loved ones and this is us. Um, and, um, and it did not show off our best. Absolutely. I, I think that that's absolutely right. And, um, and hopefully we will have learned from uh, some of the some of the things that had happened. Um, although I think we have a lot more work to do <laughs> in order to ensure that we don't have these things reoccur again, um, particularly as we see numbers rising in certain parts of the country where we're starting to get reports again. Um, and, but, you know, I just want to say one other yeah. thing in fairness also, right? So here I was going into COVID wards fully gowned. I was with my, as a volunteer long-term care ombudsman, I was with my incredible supervisor, Rachel Tate. And we would go in fully gowned, gloved, all that sort of stuff, seeing people. And then I saw also what the staff was up against, right? That's right. So I could be in, in the hospital setting or in our outpatient clinic setting where we had all the equipment that we needed. And then I'd go into the nursing homes and they'd be out of gloves. So I, I do want to under, you know, I want us to understand that they were very, very under-resourced as well. Um, yes. And that has to be fixed. Still no excuse for, for how we treated um, the people who live there. Yes. Well, and, and when you're talking about um, personal protective equipment, you know, it takes a long time to properly put on and take off personal protective equipment. So nurses going from one to a non-COVID unit to a COVID unit to administer medications, then medications were late because of the extra time that that took. So, you know, we, we've, all, we've always said that we didn't have enough staff in long-term care. And so during a pandemic, you really need more staff. You need to add staff because of some of these other factors going on. And you need to be able to cohort or put have those staff assigned to the COVID unit so they're not going back and forth. And it just didn't happen. And, you know, the, the federal government provided resources provided money um, to long-term care facilities and but I don't know that we have a good handle on how that money was used you know was it used to hire new staff and and bring on and increase the pay for staff so there's this accountability problem too mm -hmm. well and so many of the factors that we're talking about today did really lead to this perfect storm where um, where vulnerable people were really at higher risk for abuse in terms of some of the systemic issues that we talked about a little bit earlier, um, some of the stresses that were put on people living and working in facilities or visiting facilities. Um, and, and so there are a lot of factors which could explain why we are seeing the increase in abuse complaints, particularly to ombudsmen. Um, so as we think about, you know, the, the issues related to abuse of, of individuals and as people are listening and wanting to know, you know, what are some of the warning signs of abuse? Um, so Dr. Mosqueda, could you, you know, talk to us a little bit about that? What, what are some of the things that, you know, people should be looking out for, whether they're an ombudsman or a family member um, that could say, hey, something's not right here? Yeah. So there's a variety of things. I mean, one is just listen. <laughs> we have to listen to people. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not very good at that. Um, and I really include my physician colleagues in this. We haven't really talked about medical staff. We've talked about CNAs, but what role do physicians have 
mm -hmm. understanding this. Um, what role do we have in doing a better job of caring for our patients who live in long-term care? Um, in looking at their medications very carefully, working with some of the wonderful pharmacists who are there and making sure that we're not um, imposing chemical restraints on people. Um, and how are we empowering our patients by asking them how they're doing and asking very direct questions. Um, so the first thing we have to do is listen to what people are saying. The next thing we have to do is observe. Um, and I have a golden rule, uh, particularly for people who have a demanding illness, which is any sudden change in behavior is a medical problem until proven otherwise. And on what we call the differential diagnosis, and differential diagnosis is just like a list of things. So if you go into the doctor and you have chest pain, we have this list of things it could be, right? Anything from pneumonia to a heart attack to, um, to inflammation, to a whole variety of things. That's our differential diagnosis. We have to have a good differential diagnosis when somebody has a change in behavior. And on that differential diagnosis is abuse or neglect. That's one of the possible reasons somebody is having a change in behavior. So we have to, to observe and look for it and ask questions. We also have to observe for physical injuries. Um, hey, older people bruise easily. Older people get pressure sores. And I, for not one minute, do I think that every pressure sore is a sign of abuse or neglect. I think right. they can happen despite adequate care. They can also happen because somebody's getting neglected and sometimes neglected to death. Um, and what we know with this neglect is it doesn't, you know, just happen for days or weeks. It happens for months uh, or years. So we really have to be alert to physical evidence. There's also laboratory evidence that we can look at. So the long-term care ombudsman can call in help if they need interpretation of laboratory data that might look at weight loss trends or inadequate response to, uh, to nutritional status markers that you can find in blood tests when you look at things like the interdisciplinary team notes. Um, inadequate documentation on the part of the physician. They clearly aren't even aware that this person is going downhill. And this over attribution to, well, they're old, well, they have dementia, what do you expect? Oh, well, I expect a dignified life um, and recognition that this is a fellow human being who we're going to care for. So listen, observe, and ask questions. How are things going? Open-ended questions. And I know as a physician, I'm not asking a question with my hand on the doorknob, how, how are you doing? It has to be sitting down with that person, recognizing their humanness, eye to eye, how are things going for you? And mm -hmm. asking those questions in a way that, I think that that person knows that the only reason you exist at that moment is for them. Mm -hmm. And if people feel that and understand that, they'll tell you sometimes bad things that are going on. Yeah, Bev, what do you think? Yeah, Laura, you raise a really good point. We haven't really talked about the role of the medical director in mm -hmm. a nursing home um, and even in assisted living for some that have them. But um, 
you know, I don't think that medical directors are included enough um, in, you know, quality assurance, performance improvement activities in the facility. They really need to be um, the people who are saying, you know, this is these are the general conditions of residence here, and they should contribute to how many staff that home needs to have and be working alongside the administrator and the nursing staff to, to help run the place. I mean, director means something, medical director. And okay. uh, so I think uh, maybe some more emphasis on the role is important. And, you know, we've talked about abuse complaints in the ombudsman program. And I, I want to also point out that um, although not in the top five, gross neglect complaints also have increased um, or have risen um, in the top complaints, uh, went from something like 25th, 26th to now um, closer to maybe 18th, something like that um, in the more recent years. And, you know, there are def specific definitions for abuse and neglect, and usually they involve the word willful. Um, but there are a lot of other things that happen. You know, symptoms unattended is a complaint that's been in the top 10 um, in, that ombudsman programs have reported for years. And so that that's still kind of a uh, neglectful activity, you know, not paying attention, not noticing that you know, there's a, a redness on, you know, where the hip bone is because the person hasn't been out of bed or hasn't moved around in the chair, hasn't, they're using wheelchairs for seats instead of transportation. Um, and people aren't moving back and forth um, and they're getting those pressure wounds that, you know, symptoms unattended, you know, that's the same thing, you know, that it means knowing something's there and, and not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and you both raise very good points, you know, with respect to um, needing to include um, the medical care, the medical director um, as a, a key part of the team who's, you know, really paying attention to what's happening um, in, in these long-term care facilities. And uh, I really like your listen, observe, and ask questions um, steps for uh, looking at and, and trying to engage with people, um, try to identify what's been happening. As you, you know, so many people living in long-term care facilities have cognitive impairment or dementia. And so, you know, how is that nuanced when you're talking about, you know, the listen, observe, and ask questions? Well, um, I think that um, the, the first thing I do is believe the person until proven otherwise. Um, and I find that sometimes we, well, I have colleagues who do the opposite. Uh, well, they have Alzheimer's disease, so it gets dismissed. Um, but, um, but the first thing to do is to believe the person and investigate and, and find out what, what is going on. Uh, I think the other thing is that particularly for people with dementia, you wanna find them at the best time of day. Many people have issues like sundowning or they're more agitated in the morning or more confused in the morning when they just get up like most of us are. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and so it is our job is to find the person when they're at their best, uh, when their pain is best controlled, when their cognition is, is at its optimal and to have the conversation at that point. Um, I think it's very important to get medical personnel involved who can do a physical exam um, so that if there is a question that you are looking at all parts of their body. So 
uh, and not over accepting, well, they're old and they're on a blood thinner. Yeah, but how, you still have to have some traumatic event to break a blood vessel and to cause bleeding, except under rare circumstances. So, you know, um, I just, you know, Sherlock Holmes was based on a, on a physician uh, because we're supposed to be good detectives and, and put, put all sorts of things together. And I think long-term care ombudsmen are Sherlock Holmes as well. Mm-hmm. But does it make sense? Like, does it make sense that somebody who's non-ambulatory has bruising on the bottom of their feet? But does it make sense who's, that somebody who's supposed to be up and moving around has a, a stage four pressure sore on their buttocks, you know, asking questions and not overly accepting of why somebody has a fracture, um, I think are, are very important uh, questions and, and observations that we need to make. And then, you know, interviewing staff um, as, as well to understand what's going on. And sometimes it involves talking to the roommates, um, talking to other people who were there and, uh, uh, and seeing who knows what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if, if someone is um, acting differently than they normally do, uh, seems upset about something to really kind of dig in and do an investigation and find out why, you know, just keep asking why. And, you know, it, it could be, you know, you talk to the, the caregiver that day, you know, and say, how was she when you arrived this morning? And, you know, she might say, well, you know, she was out of bed earlier than normal. Usually I help her get up in the morning and um, help her brush her teeth, get ready for breakfast. But she was already up this morning and she just doesn't seem right um, today. And so, you know, but, but I don't, or, you know, a, a different nurse aide say, well, I don't normally take care of her, so I don't know. Um, so, well, where is the person who normally takes care of her? Could we give them a call? Could we have them come over and see her and just kind of let's figure out why something, what happened this morning that's different? And then just keep digging in to see, you know, what might have happened and what might she be upset about that she can't verbalize to us. And that's another way of listening. You know, some people just can't give us the words and we need to stick with it um, and spend some time. And that's what we tell ombudsmen too, you know, um, especially new ombudsmen who might not be used to working with people with dementia, just sit with them, Mm -hmm. just sit You know, if they talk about the birds, talk about birds. If they talk about food, talk about food, get to know them, sit with them, something will be revealed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as as we think about um, uh, the investigation, the asking questions, which is uh, absolutely really critical. Um, you know, we always recommend that residents and families who have concerns reach out for help. Um, certainly within the facility itself, you know, talk to a trusted staff member, um, go up the chain of command. Um, if there are concerns, social worker or, you know, directors of nursing or administrator, you know, try to find someone to provide help. Reach out to the ombudsman if you need assistance as well. Um, what kind of support, Bev, can ombudsman provide for residents and families? I think that familiarity with the facility is um, key that, you know, they might, the ombudsman might know that this particular nurse is 
a person who has some expertise or in the whatever the subject matter is, or um, know for this particular problem, you might want to talk to the dietitian because I know that dietitian and I know that they're very involved in care planning. And, and so the ombudsman's knowledge of how those facilities kind of operate um, can give people good tips. And then also just giving families advice about things like I just you know, mentioned, you know, just, just sit, just spend some time with your mom, ask some questions, identify for the staff how your how you took care of your mom when she was at home. Um, make sure that the staff know your mom or your dad's um, idiosyncrasies. You know, is this something that they've always been like um, throughout their life, or is there a change? So um, speak up the kinds of things to notice and so on. Those are um, great reasons to call an ombudsman to kind of walk through those problems. And ombudsmen like to empower people to handle problems themselves. Um, mm -hmm. But then if it doesn't work out, we are here to um, get involved and do some of that investigation, look at records, um, talk with other residents. You know, that might be something that family members wouldn't do is, you know, walk up and down the hall and talk to other people and say and find out if something similar is happening. But ombudsmen do that. You know, they might get a complaint about, um, you know, uh, an outing being canceled. And so they want to talk to other residents and find out how much of a problem is this? Is it just this one incident for this one resident? Or they can find out, is this a trend in this home and find out why that's happening? And, and uh, there's also strength in numbers, right? You're, okay. you know, the consumer voice has a great family council resource called strength in numbers. And um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of value in that and ombudsman can assist, should be assisting. The federal law requires them to uh, assist with development of citizen organizations and development and um, making resident and family council stronger so they can be a resource there as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I certainly think, you know, one of the things that as we've talked about today, if there are concerns, changes in condition, if you see red flags that cause you to be concerned, you need to speak up, you know, whether you're a resident, a family member, an ombudsman, anyone else, um, don't be complacent, but speak up and, and certainly begin asking questions, um, get to the investigators. Some of the investigators include requiring investigation within the facility, um, the state departments of health and licensing agencies, are um, places where you can file complaints and they're required to do investigations, contact the ombudsman for assistance, um, but don't just let it go. If you have concerns, um, I think the important thing is, is to, raise, to raise questions and start that process of trying to get to the bottom of what happened. Uh, that's yeah. a way to not only prevent abuse, but to help someone who's been victimized by abuse. Yeah, that's a really good point about the regulatory agency, Lori. I'm sorry I left that off, but um, yeah, an ombudsman can assist too with the right words, the right language. They know the regulations well. They're not the regulators, 
but they know the regulation. We had an ombudsman um, in, in my former state that said we provide the tools and the rules. And so um, the ombudsman know what language. We had some data in that state, in fact, that um, we would check with the survey agency and they substantiated at a higher rate complaints made by the ombudsman compared with the general public. So an ombudsman can help the family craft that complaint to the survey agency or maybe just submit the complaint themselves on behalf of the family or the resident um, to help the surveyors see the right things mm -hmm. to be able to enforce the regulations. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, not to be the skunk at the picnic on this one, but I, you know, even at the regulation level, at state levels, we're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. We're not responding well enough. Um, I think the agencies need more funding. And I think with, with what they do have, they're not doing well enough in, in general um, to respond to these sorts of complaints. Um, um, and I just want to say one thing about prevention. Um, because we've talked a lot about abuse, but um, there's so much we can do to empower residents, empower families, the people who work at nursing homes, um, that we provide better structures for people, tools. Uh, there's a wonderful program called Time Slips that is all about unleashing the creativity and imagination of people with dementia. You know, And that's an example of a practical tool that can be provided to staff at nursing homes and family members to help engage people. Um, so there's things that we can do that, that elevate um, how we work with each other and how we treat each other um, so that it's done uh, with, with warmth and, and love uh, as we're caring, caring for those who cared for us. And I think that that's a, a really great way to um, end the discussion for today, which, you know, really is focused on, you know, the goal is to ensure that um, that we are taking care of each other um, and that we're doing the best we can to prevent bad things from happening to each other and ensuring that people are um, getting not only the care that they need, but able to, to live their best lives. Um, and, and so I, I think that's really what we're focused on. And um, certainly I think we've got a number of uh, good strategies that we've talked about today um, to help people not only think through um, prevention, think through how to you know, best work if you see concerns and, and respond to situations. Um, but I think we've also recognized that there's a lot more advocacy that we all need to be doing to improve the systems that we have in place in order to better um, serve the people that are receiving services. Uh, so that's something, looks like we've got our, our job still cut out for us, right, to be moving forward with. Um, so you can get more information about all of the things that we talked about today on the Consumer Voices website at www.theconsumervoice.org. Um, and also uh, want to say it the National Center on Elder Abuse has some great resources on abuse and neglect um, and a lot of different issues that relate to that um, that are you can be used by family members, by advocates, by um, professionals and others, um, and the Administration for Community Living, um, which funds both the National Center on Elder Abuse and the Ombudsman Resource Center that the Consumer Voice Houses has also some terrific information on um, their website as well that we can be looking at. So uh, we link to all of those um, from the Consumer Voices website. I would like to thank both of you, um, Beverly Laubert and Laura Mosqueda, for joining me today on today's podcast for really interesting 
and engaging discussion on this issue um, and look forward to talking to you both again and working with you to continue moving these issues forward. Thanks so, so thank much. Thank you so much. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can share your story with us, subscribe to the podcast, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Music